Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, it's Jenny. In light of the case currently making its way through the Supreme Court, threatening Roe v. Wade, we're bringing back the second season of Ordinary Equality. The conversation around reproductive rights has been one of the most contentious political debates in America. From Wonder Media Network, Ordinary Equality unpacks the history of this debate, from the views of colonial America to underground abortion networks to the seminal Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, and all the way to the present day. Tune in right here on this feed for a new episode every Tuesday and Thursday. We are also seeing our families decimated. We are also seeing our children taken away from us. We are also seeing our fertility being threatened and being sterilized without our consent. We are seeing that we don't actually have all of the choices that our white contemporaries have. And so we need a broader lens to really capture all of the parts of the fight. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. Welcome back to Ordinary Equality. I'm Jamia Wilson, a writer, editor, and feminist activist. And I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and feminist activist. Today, we're talking about an issue that has been the undercurrent of a lot of what we've covered so far, reproductive justice. It's a framework created by Black women to center our needs in the midst of a movement that has ignored us for far too long. This episode, we're going to discuss some of the reproductive injustice that continued post-emancipation and how it spurred the founding of a movement built to address the inequity and the mistrust caused by centuries of reproductive oppression. At the end of the episode, we'll learn what white folks, myself included, can do to better center marginalized and underrepresented voices in this conversation, and what organizations are doing on the ground to ensure reproductive justice. The slave breeding industry we discussed in episode three left a painful and persistent legacy in this country. Professor Jennifer Morgan talked about how the historic commodification of Black bodies set the stage for ongoing mistreatment of Black folks, embedding generational trauma that persists today. That trauma sits beneath much more recent oppression of reproductive rights. 
Throughout most of the 20th century, eugenics campaigns flourished in the United States, quickly becoming the dominant scientific view. The goal was to exterminate all so-called undesirable qualities in society through, often forced, selective breeding and sterilization. Mental illnesses, criminal records, unwanted racial traits, low intelligence levels, and even poverty were considered undesirable indicators. Many leading scientists believed that all these traits could and should be selectively bred out of the human population by any means necessary. As we now know, all of these ideas have since been proven to be as false as they are immoral, time and time again. In the heyday of eugenics, 33 states allowed involuntary sterilization on groups lawmakers claimed were unfit to have children. In California mental institutions alone, about 20,000 forced sterilizations occurred between 1909 and 1979. Unsurprisingly, people of color and immigrants were far more likely to be selected as an undesirable group worthy of forced sterilization. Mainstream scientists pushed these views as fact. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, got involved in the eugenics movement as she tried to promote reproductive rights. On October 16, 1916, Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in order to push the idea of birth control rights forward she consorted with leaders in the ever-growing eugenics movement. She even personally advocated for selective breeding herself. In one 1921 article, she wrote, quote, The most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally and physically defective. As damning as that is, there's more to the story. Here's Loretta Ross, a professor at Smith College and former national coordinator of Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective on Sanger's legacy. I do talk about her involvement in the eugenics movement, but I also contextualize it. I mean, W.B. DuBose was involved in the eugenics movement. And so because it was a popular pseudoscience at that time, a lot of people were involved in it. And so to single out Margaret Sanger as the demon that's trying to eliminate the Black race, it's just bad historical research. Because, in fact, she was far ahead of her time. Even, I called her an intersectionalist one day, because in 1910 sometime, I think it was 1916, she wrote about poverty. She wrote about racism. She wrote about all the intersectional issues we're talking about now, 100 years later. She was so ahead of her time. And so she was actually an early intersectionalist who made some mistakes. But then everybody I know who's a human being makes mistakes. I mean, if I wanted to do an analysis of everything Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did wrong, that would get some attention. But maybe they wouldn't demonize him as they do Margaret Sanger. Many anti-choice advocates claim that Sanger sought to eliminate Black people from America altogether. That couldn't be less true. She focused the spread of birth control on poor communities, many of which were largely populated with people of color, but it's because they were more likely to be susceptible to unwanted pregnancies. And she wrote in 1914, enforced motherhood is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. It's definitely disturbing to read about many of Sanger's eugenics-based beliefs today. Though she later repudiated everything about the idea of selective breeding, we still have to contend with the damage her involvement in the movement did. When a well-known figure participates in such a harmful ideology, 
it may provide others the justification to do the same. Her language may also have sowed increased wariness in communities of color. After atrocities committed by Nazi Germany unearthed the terror born from the disgusting ideology of eugenics, the vocal public support for the movement fizzled and mostly died in the United States. But forced sterilization continued behind the scenes for decades and still takes place today, as we'll discuss later in the episode. Even still, reproductive health is incredibly unjust. Many people of color in this country lack access to quality medical care. This has been going on for decades, throughout the 20th century, and beyond. Here's Kwajalein Jackson. We heard from her at the top of the show. She's the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, there's a lot of really incredible literature and scholarship from Black women researchers and Black women providers that speak to the difference in the quality of care and in the outcomes when Black women see Black providers versus when they don't. So that's certainly an area that we're thinking about constantly. We know that there is a legacy of people's pain not being believed, people's being underdiagnosed and underprescribed for medication, a tendency to allow like fat phobia to cloud people's ability to actually interrogate what's happening within our bodies and listen to our needs, a dismissal of community and ancestral practices that can complement, you know, Western medicine and traditional healthcare systems. So many of the maternal deaths that have been recorded across the country over the last several years are preventable and that there's not a single indicator that really ties all of the cases that have been examined over time together that is stronger than systemic racism. There are clear gaps in access to quality medical care for the Black community. On top of that, many Black folks distrust the medical establishment, thanks to centuries of oppression and overt prejudice. As the reproductive rights movement marched forward through the 20th century, it was led by well-to-do white women who often misunderstood and disregarded the multifaceted impact of these complicated factors. Having the right to abortion on paper wasn't actually enough. It means nothing when your doctor doesn't listen to you, or you have no way of paying for gas or a bus fare to access services far away from your home, or when the law allows your forced sterilization. With these barriers in mind, 12 Black women gathered together in a room in 1994. They wanted to create a new framework to seek true reproductive freedom. They called it reproductive justice. Here's Loretta Ross again. She was in the room where it happened almost two decades ago. We knew that we wanted to center ourselves in the lands, and so we started with our agreement with the pro-choice movement. We fight for the right for every woman to decide if and when she'll have a baby and whether she wants to support abortion or birth control or sex education or abstinence. But then because we were Black women creating the frame, we have to fight equally as hard for the right to have the children that we want to have. And because we're always subjected to strategies of population control, same ideology, different ways they frame it. And so we fight for the right to have our children, to use midwives and doulas if we want to, to have our birth plans respected, to resist unnecessary C-sections that are not medically indicated, and so on. 
And then the third tenet of reproductive justice is to fight for the right to raise our children in safe and healthy environments, because that also is not a given when you deal with gun violence and inadequate schools and environmental issues like climate change and bad tax policies and on and on. And so in short, it's the right to have a child, not to have a child, and to raise your child. That's the elevator speech on reproductive justice. This group of 12 Black women called themselves Women of African Descent for Reproductive Justice. They met in Chicago for an Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance conference. They released a statement, Black Women on Universal Health Care Reform, with over 800 signatures in the Washington Post. This framework was completely different from the reproductive rights approach. The white women in charge of the movement to that point were so focused on the problems that impacted them the most that they ignored the many other facets impacting Black people's right to choose. Here's Kwajalein Jackson again. I think that for a long time, you know, particularly after thinking about like second wave feminism, there was this idea that abortion and birth control as a means to control pregnancy was the only thing that mattered because it was a way for people to enter the workforce, to have sort of um, equal standing with the power and access that they saw men enjoying. And that this idea that we don't want to have children because that can inhibit our ability to like live out the dreams that we have. For many communities of color, the option of working or not working was not really determined by whether or not we were parenting or caregiving. For many, many families, for generations and generations, growing their families and having children and working and being away from those families were not optional. And so while birth control and abortion access and taking control of fertility have always been important to communities of color, it has not necessarily been seen as a a barrier um, or maybe that's not really the right words, in the same way that white women thought that if I'm not pregnant, then I can become the boss. If I don't have children to raise, then I can be a professional. For Black women, often there's not a desire to not parent, but there is a desire to have other avenues to be able to make choices and live out their destiny. So I think that the Black women who coined the phrase reproductive justice in the the early 90s we're really thinking about that complexity of saying, we're not saying abortion's not important to us, but it is not the only thing that we are fighting for. Just think about that Margaret Sanger quote again. Enforced motherhood is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. But what about forced sterilization? Denial of quality health care? For people of color and marginalized genders, protecting themselves from these things are just as important as protecting themselves from enforced motherhood. And even then, there is more to preventing enforced pregnancy than what the laws say on paper. Today, reproductive justice is completely distinct from how many people regard the meaning of reproductive rights or reproductive health. The terms are far from interchangeable, and to treat them that way diminishes the history surrounding these movements and the people of color who fought to present a new framework. Here's Monica Ray Simpson, executive director of Sister Song, a national organization founded on advancing reproductive justice. 
each one of these kind of sectors, for lack of a better term, operate very differently, right? Reproductive health, really focusing on the service delivery, making sure that people have access to the services that they need, right? To be able to um, have their their healthiest bodies, their healthiest lives, and all of that. And reproductive rights, really looking at that advocacy, the legal ways in which that we're fighting for our rights. And we think about Roe v. Wade that we're constantly fighting for. And we think about, you know, the work that's been happening at the state level and all the different ways that we've had to fight back, you know, these, these political and legal attacks on our reproductive freedom. That is absolutely where we kind of see this lane of reproductive rights, you know, coming into full focus. And then reproductive justice, this movement that was absolutely started by Black women, is a framework and a movement. I think that's important for people to know, right? This framework is one that brings in the elements of intersectionality and this connection to reproductive health and rights to social justice issues. It gives us the ability to center our needs, our communities, our culture, our histories in this repro world. And so that's what makes us different. So what does all this mean? How exactly have intersectional problems impacted reproductive freedom for Black folks and other marginalized groups throughout history? How are these problems still impacting us today? A complex web of social issues and systemic oppression affect whether people have complete freedom to those three tenets of reproductive justice. The right not to have a child, the right to have a child, and to raise a child. We couldn't possibly cover everything that touches the ability to do those things. But here are some real examples that show why marginalized groups need an intersectional framework. In September of 2020, whistleblowers revealed that immigrants in a Georgia ICE detention center were subjected to unsanitary conditions and medical neglect, which included an extremely high rate of hysterectomies among women. Detainees alleged that doctors didn't effectively communicate what procedure they were performing on their patients in their native languages. In interviews, Many patients seemed not to understand what had happened. They didn't know that they had been sterilized. In this case, folks who did not speak English as a first language were subjected to what amounts to forced sterilization, while detained in a stressful, unsanitary environment. It is unclear exactly how many women were affected by these horrifying abuses, but even one is unacceptable. Providing these immigrants fundamental human rights, offering quality medical care, and maintaining their ability to have children is an issue of reproductive justice. Poverty is another major reproductive justice issue. Constant battles against welfare reforms unfairly target people of color in our most vulnerable communities. That impacts their ability to have and raise children sustainably and safely. Here's Kwajalein Jackson again. I really reject this idea that abortion is a solution to poverty. There are many, many things that need to be put in place to ensure that poverty is eradicated, that people have fair and equal wages, that people have dignity at work and the ability to have rights as an employee, that people have universal health care. Like all of these things are critical. And whether or not you have an additional child should not be the thing that sends you deeper into poverty. We want people who want children to be able to have the, the children that they want. In the case of poor people struggling against welfare cuts, legal abortion access is not their only concern. Some may fear their ability to take off work, travel to a clinic, or afford treatment. Others may want a child, but cannot afford to have one. 
Indigenous people also face significant barriers in access that are inextricably linked to colonization and the destructive legacy of Manifest Destiny and the Dawes Act. The Indian Health Service, or IHS, is severely understaffed and underfunded. One 2002 study pointed out that only 25 abortions were performed with the IHS since 1976, after passage of the Hyde Amendment. That's the law that prevents the use of federal funds for abortion, except in specific cases. IHS clinics only allow abortions under strict conditions, limiting access for Native American folks. Contraception access is just as limited. Not to mention, many reservations are located far from an abortion provider. All of these problems have just as much to do with the lack of attention and care paid to the needs of indigenous people in the country as it does with abortion's legal status. Location is a problem for many people outside of indigenous communities, too. Kwajalein Jackson explains the diversity of patients that her organization treats in Georgia. So we certainly see patients from Alabama, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, in part because it's challenging to get an appointment. Georgia has more clinics than many other states surrounding us do. But there was a period of time where folks were traveling from as far as Texas to come to Georgia to get care. And I know, you know, again, anecdotally through other clinics that we're in conversation with, people were traveling to Oregon, you know, traveling to Colorado. And when we think about gestational limits, I mean, that's one of the other big hurdles that folks have to deal with. It is a heartbreaking thing for someone to come to the clinic thinking that they are at a certain number of weeks, they get their ultrasound, and then they find out that they're further along than they anticipated and they can't be seen because of the state restrictions. They have to go somewhere else. That can be a really devastating thing for someone to have to contend with. And then you're working again under a time clock of how am I gonna raise the money and take off the time from work? There are countless problems intersecting that impact reproductive justice and that these stories didn't cover. There's the quality of available housing, local access to nutritional food and clean water, infrastructure stability and public transportation, whether or not people are in fear of police brutality or unnecessarily harsh punishments for nonviolent crimes. All of these issues and more may alter someone's ability to live freely and raise a family. Check out our show notes for a list of sources and articles that touch on some of these essential human rights problems. All of these issues are missing when we decide to hone in on the reproductive rights-only perspective. I think part of the problem or one of the barriers to folks understanding the reproductive justice framework is sometimes it feels too big. Like, it's everything. You know, it's it's housing, it's criminal justice, it's poverty. It can feel a little bit unwieldy. And so I think one of the things that helps me is just to refocus on those three tenants that they came up with when they first formed the framework, which is the right to have a child, the right to not have a child and the right to raise a child if you want to. And so I I kind of go back to those three things and I say, what are the things that impede those? 
What are the things that can keep people from making free choices regarding any of those options? And those are the types of barriers that we need to eliminate. It's not just abortion. It's not just getting medication, but it's kind of all of these things that keep people from making informed and adequate choices to do the things that they want to do in their lives. It's interesting. What I love about the reproductive justice framework is it's evolving. It's an emergent framework. It can always grow. It's not limited by institutions that were built on systems that were only really considering the full humanity of white landowning men. So when I really think of that and I think of reproductive justice, I love it because it it disseminates the power. I also think when I think about reproductive justice and explain it to people who don't understand to be on the law, I like to remind people of that Martin Luther King quote where he talks about what you're actually saying to a bootless man when you tell him to pull himself up by his bootstraps. I feel that that applies here. People can say, oh, you're not oppressed. Roe v. Wade is on the books. You'll never lose this right because it's on the books. Yet we see in lived reality what it means when someone can't afford to gas their car, when someone is living on a reservation and they are many hours away from the closest affordable public abortion provider that they can receive support from. And then when they get there, they don't have money for a hotel and there's a mandatory rating period. And then they have to stay there and then be subjected to non-medically accurate, non-scientific propaganda to have that before they would even be able to get their procedure. And those things create deterrence. Those things stop people from getting access to human dignity. Okay, so it's clear that a reproductive justice framework is essential to providing real access to communities in need. It's clear that the approach must be different from what we've been doing under the banner of reproductive rights. But how do we actually enact change? When it comes to centering the experience of Black women in this discussion, mainstream avenues have been falling short for years. Here's Loretta Ross again on her experience dealing with the white-centric reproductive rights movement. Well... Obviously, when you look at the whole Planned Parenthood network, they're in a lot of cities and towns that don't have a whole lot of contact with people of color in general and black people in particular. So people don't get challenged on this absorption of white supremacist ideas. That's just as in every culture, every part of America. But there's a couple of things that we need to point out. When people have not been challenged on their inherent racism that they've just absorbed, They tend to see when the clients who come to their clinics as objects instead of partners as subjects. And so they treat them as such. And they tend to see their staff of color as objects. And so when Sister Song was first founded, we started having our national conferences. There was always all these women of color from Planned Parenthood meeting at our conferences because Planned Parenthood didn't have the sense to create space within Planned Parenthood for their staff of color to meet, because they were afraid of what they might say. And so we used to always kind of shrug our shoulders and laugh about how many Planned Parenthood people were caucusing at Sister Song. Like, we, our job was to create that space for Planned Parenthood. 
And so that was evidence that there needed to be some divesting of racial attitude. The last thing I'll say is because they've had a hundred years to reconcile a, a narrative around Margaret Sanger really pisses me off that we black women have to do that lifting for them when they had many opportunities to do that over the past 100 years. And I've even made direct offers and said, if you don't want to do it yourself, let us message it for you. Stop paying these multi-million dollar consultants to get it wrong because they kept getting it wrong. Oh, that was then, this is now. So throw her under the bus, will you? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I mean, really? And so he told Cecile Richards, was, I'm really tired of carrying water for Planned Parenthood. We're not being compensated for this simply because y'all are not doing that internal work of landing on a narrative. And then their lack of landing on a narrative is why even Planned Parenthood people are taking her names off of clinics. I mean, this is the consequence of neglecting that racist, that reconciling the racism in, within your own movement. What should organizations that have historically been white-led do to start actually honoring and including the experiences of marginalized people? Kwajalein Jackson and the Feminist Women's Health Center can act as a model. For one thing, Kwajalein Jackson recognized that the center should have a director team made up entirely of Black women, since the majority of patients and frontline workers in the organization are Black. So the decision makers bringing in their own sort of complex and dynamic experiences and perspectives to inform the choices that we make, making sure that Black folks are present and visible and have the seats of power that are necessary to make real systemic change. So that's one way that we've been trying to do it. But additionally, we just this year have entered into an organizational transformation process where we've contracted some facilitators who can really help us to go even deeper in examining our white feminist foundations and, the, again, the ways that white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and these oppressive systems that we are working so hard to dismantle in the world are showing up in, in the house. So trying to build up a shared analysis across the organization, across level, across department, so that we have a shared understanding about our values and how we move in the world. Doing political education so that we can understand what our focus is and how to yield reproductive justice to impact these other intersecting oppressive systems that we're examining how we can make sure that our policies and our practices and our behaviors are honoring and centering of communities of color, of people across identity, and really match with the values that we espouse externally. Again, we can't fight for justice and then not examine the ways that we have blind spots around disability within the organization. Like we cannot fight these economic justice fights and then pay our folks poverty wages. We have to be able to like walk our talk. And I think that is the way that we're shifting from centering whiteness to centering blackness in a very different way. It's important for organizations to internally examine their own histories of white centrism and shift focus to a reproductive justice framework at their very core. 
but making change in this country is even more vital for the vulnerable people at risk today. When it comes to that, there are many routes to take. Legal change, grassroots movements, and cultural change, and all should be pursued together. Trump's disastrous administration made it clear how important and impactful typical legislative routes can be for change. Here's Monica Ray Simpson again. I think for the entire time 45's administration was in place, every single day we were clenching our teeth, clenching our fists to say, what is coming next? Because that administration used every part of their power to push everything back that we have as progressive folks, as justice-centered folks have been working for and working on for decades. In a matter of four years, they were just checking things off their list, right? And in terms of repro justice issues, right? Like, I mean, the attacks were insane. In 2019, of course, we saw the abortion bans that took over. The maternal health crisis was, you know, at its worst, and there was no one, you know, to really support that and to really move things on that you know, across the administration. It was just hard to move anything in that prior administration. But we are absolutely going to be dealing with the aftermath, right, of what that 45th administration did. And we're, we're going to have a lot to hold this new administration accountable to as well. If we constantly have to undo everything the previous administration implemented, it will be difficult to move forward with comprehensive reproductive access. State governments continue to attempt to pass harmful legislation that limits abortion in defiance of Roe v. Wade. Lobbying against these efforts will continue to be essential. I think that we have far too many examples (laughs) that show us that the legal system was not designed to protect, support people of color, women, queer folks, trans folks, (laughs) you know, it it, it wasn't designed to do that, right? Because white supremacy is real and white supremacy is always looking to support itself and protect itself, right? And so we we could have a whole show just on and go through case by case of just, you know, how we can show that the legal system isn't, isn't designed for us. And yet it is a strategy. And yet it is something that we have to, you know, actively participate in and be aware of because it is, it is something that we, we are, whether we want to or not, connected to. I'll bring in the example of Sister Song deciding to be the lead plaintiff in the case um, against Kemp in the state of Georgia, right? Because there was an abortion ban, like too many of them that came all across this country. Georgia was hit with one. And so we knew we had to fight this legally. And we had some deep conversations internally as an organization around what does that mean for us as a Black woman-led, people of color, national collective, right? What does it mean to engage, you know, with the legal system in this way? And undoubtedly, we know we knew that it was something we needed to do because our base, our members, our people deserve to live in a state where there are no restrictions, right, that prevent them from being able to access whatever they need around their reproductive health care. However, legal solutions shouldn't be pursued at the expense of valuable grassroots movements to provide abortion access. As we've learned in previous episodes, governments often fail to uphold moral law. And even when abortion was illegal, grassroots movements sprung up to provide vital abortion access. That shows how impactful they can be. Kwajalein Jackson talked about the importance of grassroots activism in the reproductive space. I think that there is a a really heavy concentration in using 
political and legislative and litigation channels as a means to expand access. And I think that that's only a small piece. I think that I, as a as a black woman in the world, don't don't anticipate gaining my liberation through these systems that were not built for my good. So I think it's really important for us to think about other non-traditional routes to, to continue to provide care. We know that our communities have been taking care of themselves in the ways that institutions have failed. And so what are the ways that we can continue to build that and make that more robust? Thinking about the ways that doulas and midwives and folks who have been the community resource, how can we pour into and replicate those models for places where a clinic is not accessible and not available to people? Not just thinking about abortion, but really around uh, across a gamut of reproductive health care needs. And then I think ultimately, you know, these conversations are beginning to happen, I think, in part as a byproduct of some of the racial uprisings that have occurred last summer. Certainly people looking at the distribution of power, the distribution of funding, the ways that Black-led reproductive justice organizations have been woefully underinvested in for decades and the power and wealth and influence have been concentrated in a few large institutional entities. It's really about taking an opportunity to interrogate the ways that power has been distributed and making a decision to do something different. You know, lots of conversation um, has certainly been floating around about trust Black women and listen to Black women and, you know, follow the lead of Black women, but we have not seen that actually matched with investment and platform in the ways that we need to. And so that's the other part of what I would like to see in the reproductive health rights and justice movement is a real, a real hard shift and examination of the ways that power are preventing us from getting some of the wins that I think that we actually could get. The Feminist Women's Health Center is one example of a non-government organization doing incredible work to expand abortion access and push reproductive justice. In the face of the pandemic, they address the actual needs of their community. For example, we partner with a lot of abortion funds across the country and those that are concentrated in the South that will help to supplement the cost of, of abortion care by literally giving dollars towards people's appointments, but also providing practical support. So whether that's providing rides or lodging or childcare that will allow for folks to come to their appointment and not have one more obstacle that would prevent them from getting the care that they need. One other example that, that comes to mind is during the pandemic, you know, we had to stay open because abortion care is essential care. And a pandemic doesn't stop people's need for reproductive services. But we also recognize that so many folks in our community were so deeply economically impacted. People were being furloughed and laid off and not able to continue to care for themselves. So we shifted some of our work so that we could provide some emergency funding to folks so that we can turn around and support people in, the, in their basic needs, their critical needs. And that all is a part of reproductive justice to me. By following the example of the Feminist Women's Health Center, we can all be agents of reproductive justice. 
simply by volunteering to address the needs of the people in our community. One thing I think about a lot is how I can maintain momentum and optimism in the face of all of these problems. I mean, sometimes it feels like it will be too hard to solve everything, especially when state-level governments are facing constant and vicious attacks against abortion access. Kwajalein had an interesting answer for how she stays driven. I have to regularly practice visioning something different. That's the thing I think that keeps me going is imagining the kind of world that I want to live in, that I want the people that I care about to live in, and trying to think about like what are the small incremental steps that will take us closer to that, to places where Black people have protection and safety, where people have the ability to be well, where people are not so worked to a fine dust in order to feed and clothe and house themselves, where people have the things they need and are in community with one another. Like those are the things that I, I, I think about, I dream about, I try to like make as tangible as possible. And because if I believe it's possible, then I can do the work to get us closer. We covered a lot of information today. Check the show notes for a list of articles and sources that talk about issues of reproductive justice. We wish we had more time this episode to talk even more about the many marginalized communities that need consistent and safe access to reproductive justice. Check out the links for other folks you can follow to learn more. And next time on Ordinary Equality, we're covering exactly what some of those state-level attacks look like. They're called trap laws, and they're proving how tenuous our legal right to abortion really is. Talk to you next week. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Janice Formicella and Taylor Williamson. And thank you to the women who created the Reproductive Justice Framework. Tony Bond-Leonard, Reverend Alma Crawford, Evelyn S. Field, Terry James, Isola Maringay, Cassandra McConnell, Cynthia Newbel, Elizabeth Terry, Abel Thomas, Wynette P. Willis, Kim Youngblood, and Loretta Ross. We want to tell you about a podcast we think you're going to love. It's Birthful, a show created and hosted by advanced birth doula, postpartum educator, and child sleep consultant, Adriana Losada. Birthful provides informative interviews and inspiring birth stories. It covers topics including choosing a doula, mastering breastfeeding, navigating hospitals, baby sleep, and the role of partners. Adriana crafts every episode with an eye for curating information while offering real-world examples to take some of the anxiety away from a transformational experience that can be both magical and overwhelming. Ultimately, Birthful wants all new and expectant parents to have the empowering births and nourishing postpartum experiences that they deserve. Find it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and listen to Birthful on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Head to birthful.com for a full Birthful experience.